Thank you to all our regular podcast listeners. It's our pleasure and honor to make the show for you. If you find our show valuable, please do us a favor and subscribe, rate, and review it. Even better, forward it to a friend. A big mahalo to you for doing this. I'm Guy Kawasaki, and this is Remarkable People. We're on a mission to make you remarkable. Helping me in this episode is a remarkable dynamic duo, father and son. Their names are Doug Kenrick and David Lundberg Kenrick. These two remarkable individuals have co-authored a book that explores the intersection of modern technology and human evolution and how our Stone Age brains still influence our behavior in the present day. With Doug's background as an evolutionary psychologist at Arizona State University and David's experience as media outreach program manager at Arizona State University, these two bring a unique and insightful perspective to the table. The name of their book is Solving Modern Problems with a Stone Age Brain, Human Evolution and the Seven Fundamental Motives. Don't miss this opportunity to hear from two experts in the field of psychology and evolution to learn how to address modern problems with our Stone Age brains. I'm Guy Kawasaki. This is Remarkable People. And now, father and son, Doug Kenrick and David Lundberg Kenrick. I want to start with a very foundational question, which is about social psychology, evolutionary psychology, whatever you guys call it, Mm -hmm. about methodology. And it seems to me that many of the studies, if you were being a wise ass, you could say, well, it's interpreting results from a bunch of college students trying to get credit or making pizza money and being <laughs> extrapolated to all of humanity. Men don't care about such and such, but care about looks or women are the opposite or you name it. It could be that many of the things that once it appears in the New York Times, that's a long way from peer review by psychologists. Right. So how do we interpret these, the reporter's interpretation of a psychological study done in a lab someplace? So I would say any single study you want to be skeptical about. But what we try to do is we have these techniques called meta-analysis, for example, which is looks at a whole bunch of different findings on the same topic and asks did they produce similar results? Now, that might simply be that all college students have the same you know, responses. So we also look across methods. Lately, psychologists have been looking across cultures. In our book, what we did is we basically went and read literature on anthropology. So we were interested in the question of, we have this Maslow's pyramid that organizes our book and says that there's seven sets of problems that people need to deal with. We wrote a social psych book with Bob Cialdini, in fact, and we have a similar structure in that book. But there's these seven sets of problems. Our ancestors needed to survive. They needed to feed themselves, not get bitten by a snake. They needed to protect themselves from the bad guys. They needed to make some friends and keep those friends. They needed to get some respect. They needed to find a mate. And then they needed to keep that mate, which some of us have learned is a slightly different problem. Uh, and (laughs) And then they, from an evolutionary perspective, they did all of those things. Those are developmental motivations that unfold in order to care for offspring. And now, when we wrote this book, so we know a lot about social psychology, having written a textbook, on it, but we also delved into the literature in different fields to try to find out what's the constant. So what exactly, if you were a Yanomamo or you were someone living on a little island in the Philippines that was a horticulturalist society with no you know, radio or television, or if you were living in the jungles of Africa, anthropologists have studied these remote societies and they're different in many ways, but there are some commonalities that they share They have that same to-do list as we do. They have to survive. They have to make friends. They have to get some respect. They have to find a mate. They have to care for their families. And so do we. The interesting question, though, it sort of relates to your thing, is it's the same motivations we have, 
But do the old school solutions, do the, what's wired into our brain, do they work in the modern world? And the answer is sometimes but sometimes not at all. I just wanted just to add to this, going back to your question, Guy, this question of are these studies all done with college students? That's a big concern that within academia as well is. And I think actually, Dad, one of your biggest early hits was looking at marriage studies all around the world to see what things are true all around the world. Because it, it turns out the things that just happen at ASU's campus might be cultural, but if you see something all over the place, then there's a pretty good chance it's universal. So Yeah, that's an interesting connection. So be, being an evolutionary psychologist, especially 20, 30 years ago when the field first started, because I, I was someone who, like you, I know you jumped majors. I didn't start as a psych major, I started as a biology major. And then I thought of transferring to anthropology. And so I got interested in biological evolutionary aspects of human behavior and i it was a great shock to find out that some people regarded that as some kind of a right-wing political plot to justify <laughs> the existing order and i was a long-haired hippie guy my god i don't want to be associated with a right-wing political plot but i do want to be associated with finding out the truth about human nature i gave a talk at the university of michigan many many years ago about the time that you were out there proselytizing for macintosh and i was young and i gave this talk and i mentioned some findings we had that suggested that social psychologists a long time have said that men are interested in younger women and women are interested in older men. And there's about a two-year discrepancy. But with my friend Rich Keith, we collected some data showing that's not exactly true. It turns out that as men get older, they become interested in progressively younger women relative to their own age. So a 22-year-old guy and girl or man and woman are both interested in the same age, roughly around that age. But you get to 40 and now the men are interested in a younger woman. They're not interested in a peer. And even when women get to like 60, they're still interested in guys like 65, 70, even though that's a very thin pool to be fishing in. And so we found that. And when I mentioned those findings and said basically that over the lifespan, women continuously are interested in older men, but men get progressively interested in younger women. And somebody stood up in the back and said, he was from New York, which I am too. And he said, you know, that's just due to American culture, you know. And, And I thought, all right. So we went out and we collected data in societies all around the world. We even got my friend Rich Keefe is married to a woman from the Philippines and we went to her little teeny island called Poro and got marriage records from like 1920 and 1930. And it turns out that as you got further from American society, older men were more likely to marry younger women. And in some sense, that question, does this apply to college? It's a good question. And it forces us to go out and sometimes get better data to answer the question. As an aside, let me make a statement that after you're reading your book, I am so glad that I did not become an anthropologist. That is a high risk profession is what I concluded from your book. Is the gist that our stone age brain is just not equipped to deal with modern problems. Can you just explain this stone age brain that is at fault, if you will? I think in a lot of ways it is, right? We focus on the ways that it's not equipped, but the thing, it's like you're you're going to eat when you see food. You have mechanisms in your brain that are going to keep you from starving to death, but you also might overeat because those mechanisms are designed to have you eat as many high calorie foods as possible. And it's the ways that our brains are not perfectly suited. Those are the situations where it makes the most sense as people come in and make active corrections to our lives to try to try to match. A lot of the mechanisms are not mismatched. So for example, in your book on wisdom, you talk a lot about your family. You actually gave a speech, I think, to the Palo Alto High School, if I'm remembering correctly, and you did the David Letterman backwards list. And the first thing you said to them was, keep your friends and family close. That worked for our ancestors, and it also works for us. So it isn't all mismatched, but the trick is to figure out when you find yourself having this powerful passion that's leading you a direction that in the modern world ain't working out. That's when we talk about a guy, Walter Hudson. He got to 1,197 pounds. I might have 
made those last couple of digits up, but it was well over a thousand pounds. So in this case, our ancestors could have never done that because they didn't have access to that much food and they had to go get the food. They couldn't just sit in a bedroom and have somebody bring them food. And so sometimes there's a mismatch, sometimes there's not. And the trick is to learn when to go with your feelings and when to not, when you want to suppress and you want to use psychological techniques to manage those impulses. As you point out, that's the trick. But what is the trick? Before you get to be a thousand pounds, how do you know that your ancient brain has taken over and is defeating in the modern environment? I mean, I think a lot of times we know. Like, I know when I'm eating food that I shouldn't be eating and I still eat it. And the same, you know, as we talk within the book about not just food, but about how we have these sort of mismatches across friendships and dating type things and career things. And I think a lot of times the trick is once we know how do we actually either adjust our behavior or our environment to not allow ourselves to eat all the cookies like I will do if I have a box of cookies in front of me. And a lot of that comes down to sort of classic behavior management sort of things. Hiding your cookies in the forest. <laughs> well, behaviorists call that stimulus control. Basically, it's easier to control your environment than to control your appetites. And so if you have a high incentive value food in front of you, if you do like I did during the COVID pandemic and buy a whole bunch of chocolate covered cherries and nuts because <laughs> I thought we were going to starve and put them on the, the counter, you're going to get a pot belly. My pants being tight told me, hey, we got a problem here. And so then the intervention is artificial, actually. Then you really do need to learn something about the findings of psychology, not just evolutionary psych, behaviorism and cognitive psychology have a lot of wisdom in there, but you got to learn it. A lot of the people who you've interviewed, I noticed, they're basically in the game of trying to teach people a trick to sort of trick like Milkman's book, Katie Milkman. She talks a lot about these kinds of, you know, we're aware we want to change, but it's not that easy. And we need artificial props and we need to learn. I, I think this is a modern day application of this, which is I freely admit I'm addicted to my iPhone and I would sleep next to my iPhone and check it several times a night. <laughs> But I have figured out, talk about changing your environment as opposed to your behavior. If I charge it two or three rooms away, ah, yes, I won't get up and go get it in the middle of the night. That's a perfect so example. So is that an example That's of control. putting the chocolate in another place? Exactly. It's very much so. Yeah, that is a perfect one. It's also a good one if you find that... When you wake up in the morning, you check it rather than getting out of bed. It's a good way to get yourself out of bed because if you wake up and you're like, I want to know what people are saying about me on Twitter, you go and you seek it out. And so, yeah, so that's actually, it's a perfect one. Is this what you refer to as the naturalistic fallacy? The naturalistic fallacy is more the idea that just because we have a natural desire to do something, then that means that it is sort of either ethically good or even good for us. So the naturalistic fallacy would be more like the idea of, oh, if I want to eat something, I should. If I'm angry and I want to hit someone, I should. And so those sorts of things turn out to not really be so good in most situations in modern life. You just described half the people in California. <laughs> I digress. Right. If we were having this interview a thousand or maybe 10,000, maybe a hundred thousand years from now, do you think our DNA or whatever's inside us is going to catch up and figure out that our brain needs to evolve and not So yes, do this? yes. Even when you think about the Stone Age brain, it's not like everybody in the Stone Age was perfectly adapted to the Stone Age. Our ancestors probably were more adapted, and there are probably people out there today that are more adapted even perhaps than you or I. But the question is, do I want to go out without a fight? Do I want to let the fact that my brain might make me want to eat cookies more than someone who's a little more well-adapted allow me to be pushed out of the gene pool? Or do I want to sort of correct and say, no, let's, let's keep me a part of this? There's another interesting aspect of your question, I think, which is I actually thought no rather than yes, to tell you the truth, because I thought that 
I think the technology certainly evolves faster than our brains do. In fact, that's part of our technology now. Our brains haven't evolved. It's only in the last 150 years that most of the things around us have existed. You know, even this nice bicycle I have, you couldn't have gotten it 150 years ago. You couldn't have gotten an iPhone 15, 20, I don't know how long they've been around. You couldn't have gotten this Mac that I had. The one that you were pushing back in 1983 was just that little square box. And now I've got this amazing machine which allows me to talk to you as if you're in the next room. So a lot of this stuff is new, and yet we adjust to it. And I think that in some sense, human beings, we're a cultural animal. And so we learn, we develop tools that help us pull the coconuts down from the trees rather than just (laughs) evolve to climb better. And I feel like that's, I think that's what's going to happen. And assuming we survive, I think that we will actually learn. And Dave, you and I have talked about this. We talk with our kids sometimes who are very techie and they're attached to their devices. Are there ways, and Guy, I'd be interested in your question. Are there ways to use technology to help us fight technology? little sub-programs I can put onto this thing that I do know they exist, but it'd be nice to make them really attractive so that it says to me, Doug, you said this morning you wanted to work for two hours on writing, and now I see you've read the New York Times headlines for two hours. Do you want to keep doing this, or would you rather go back to your writing? And maybe even give me... Yeah, go ahead. Well, at least it wasn't Falk. Yes, right. (laughs) So... You mentioned Maslow's hierarchy back a few minutes ago. So what's wrong with Maslow's hierarchy in the modern age? You want to answer that one? No, you go for it, Dad. This was research that my dad and Steve Newberg and Mark Schaller and Vlad Griskevich did. So I think you should explain it. This actually was a very controversial idea. It got into the New York Times twice. It was like one of my, you know three minutes of fame. And some people got a little annoyed at this, but I'll tell you what the idea was. We looked at Maslow and it turns out Maslow was an early evolutionary psychologist, which is, his advisor was Harry Harlow. Remember the, the monkeys, the, you know, with the cloth and wire mothers? Harry Harlow was arguing against behaviorism and the idea that every social motive is secondarily derived from eating or drinking. And what he found, he did that research on contact comfort, but Maslow was his student and Maslow expanded that idea and said that not only are we not simply physiological hungers and thirsts, but we have social needs that are separate from those. And we have the need for affiliation. I forget what he called them, but basically, then we also have a need for esteem, which we would call status. And then he thought we moved to self-actualization, to developing our own selves. And his ideal was someone, and it sounds very good to an educated person, being off somewhere, painting your own painting playing your own music and not worrying what other people think. And that's the part that's that... the other half of California, okay. Yes, right. No, I'm sure he was extremely popular in California, but probably still is. But where I would differ from Maslow is in, in two ways. One is I think that he missed out on 50 years of other evolutionary psychologists come along and reminded us that organisms are designed to reproduce. And again, naturalistic fallacy doesn't mean that's the best thing to do is to have 20 kids. I admire you had two kids and then you adopted two kids, which I think is a a much better way to go than just thinking, I want to replicate, have 100 kids. But that's a separate ethical question. But Maslow paid no attention to reproduction. And he actually, if he talked about sex at all, it was like as an annoying biological need that you could probably have gotten out of the way with masturbation, then move on to playing your guitar and doing some higher thing just for yourself. (laughs) And we kind of disagreed with that and said, look, after you get to esteem, what do you do? Then you use that to find a mate and then you need to keep a mate. So we took self-actualization off the top of the pyramid and put in finding a mate, keeping a mate, and caring for your family. And people, when that was in the New York Times as the idea of the day, these letters, hostile letters were sent to the New York Times and sent to the dean at ASU saying, how dare these people mess? It was like we had torn apart a crucifix or something like that. It's just how dare they mess with Maslow's sacred pyramid. And I could see the reaction because Self-actualization became an ideal. It's a good thing to do. It's good to develop your talents. It's good to be into philosophy and music. But what I would argue is that we don't do that for non-social motives. It isn't like we go play our guitar off by ourselves. We develop those talents so that we can connect more with people. And if, you know, if you're a male and you're like Diego Rivera, you develop those painting talents and it has some 
non-small consequences for your mate value. He would not have gotten Frida Kahlo if he wasn't a great painter. And so we basically argue that, yes, self-actualization is a real thing. Human beings do want to develop their own unique potential, but they want to do it so that they become valuable to other people and they become valuable mates. That's the biggest difference. The other thing I would say, one other difference, and Dave will tell me I'm talking too long, but speaking of kind of California in the 1970s, I think Maslow's ideas were a little too like psychology of the 70s and 60s, too self-centered. It's kind of like, why would the ideal be that I make me, that I devote my life to me. And even Maslow didn't really believe that. If you look at his examples of people, they were people who were great because they helped other people. They were like Eleanor Roosevelt. They were people he admired, and he admired them not because they were off playing their guitar in a room by themselves. ever heard of the Japanese concept Ikigai, I-K-I-G-A-I? That rings a bell, but go ahead and tell me about it. It's this concept that you find your life calling and whether it's making pottery or samurai swords or to me, my life calling is podcasting, which is another way of saying self-actualization. But you put the podcast out, right? It's not like you're just recording podcasts with people and then storing them in your attic. And the same thing even with someone who's making pottery or making samurai swords, right? I would think that someone who makes those and then gives them or trades them with the people around them is going to be having a more fulfilling life than someone who just, I don't know, I could see making pottery and keeping it in your house being really fun, but I think the giving it back is a big part of it. I have a fundamental question about pyramids, whether it's yours or Maslow. And it seems to me that a pyramid is kind of a shaky metaphor because it implies, you know, you build the base, then you move to the next level, then you move to the next level. And one of the implications of that is once you build the base, let's say the base is filling your nutritional clothing security needs, right? So you got that base, then you can move on to a higher thing. But my observation of life is you may have that base, but that base is not necessarily permanent. So it's not like you can say, I checked that box off. Now I can go just work on pottery in a dark room for the rest of my life. So why do we continue to use the pyramid as the metaphor? I'll, I'll be honest. We have spent so much time debating whether or not to make this a pyramid. And even the original title of the book, we had talked about calling it, because we really like the seven fundamental motives. I think my dad and I both agree these are great things that everybody's sort of concerned with. But then we were like, well, is it climbing the pyramid? Because then people are going to try to jump to the top. Is it building the pyramid? I actually think like a prism, like where you like view through it and you see all the things at once would be a better metaphor. But I don't know. I guess pyramids are the thing. So we <laughs> I have a different answer. My answer is that actually... Our pyramid isn't, a, isn't precisely a pyramid. We, in fact, have overlapping triangles so that when you move to the next level, the other one is behind and it's still there. In fact, in our pyramid, we don't have the base go all the way across. We have another triangle and a little bit of space on the side. So it indicates that all throughout your life, you're never going to get over the idea of survival. If there's a threat to survival our mechanisms for self-protection or whatever, for getting food or getting away from a snake are going to come in. If there's a threat to my friendship, it isn't like I'm going to say, well, I'm now playing my guitar, so who cares? Then I'm going to jump in and try to do something to maintain the friendship. So my argument is that ours is not a pyramid in the sense of you do move. In fact, even Maslow thought this, but he got misconstrued over the years. He didn't even make the pyramid, incidentally. It was uh, an organizational psychologist whose name I've forgotten who made up the pyramid. He just had a hierarchy. But Maslow didn't believe that the motives go away, nor do we. I would say that the one thing that I do like still about the pyramid metaphor is the idea that the upper la layers are less likely to collapse if you've got those True. foundational layers. True. True. So. 
And you do need, okay. developmentally speaking, that is sort of the way you go through life. That basically, a kid, when they're first born, they're not concerned with status or mating or any of those things. And then a kid, when a kid goes into preschool, they be, start to become concerned with affiliation, but they don't really care. They'll go around with a dirty diaper all morning playing with their friends because they're not even thinking about how they're being evaluated. And then suddenly around maybe age seven or eight, the desire for esteem kicks in. So these things kick in, but the others don't go away. When okay. I start to become concerned with status, I don't stop being concerned with my friends. In fact, sometimes there's conflict between the different motives. So like status and affiliation. That's true. That is one of the things that I think it's really tricky to balance all of them. And so a lot of times we have to choose, right? And I think this is one of the things that always makes cinema and art so compelling is seeing people choose between these different motives. Someone who has to decide between protecting their loved ones or protecting themselves. So yeah, I think these are big questions. I would make the case that anyone in Hollywood is making a choice between status and caring for your family. I don't, see, I don't see a lot of good parenting coming out of Hollywood, right? Unless maybe Pixar, the people who are there might be more doing family stuff. And Pixar movies, movies for kids always do Toy well. Toy Story. Yeah. And uh, What was the one about the kid that went up in the balloon? Uh, oh, up, right. So <laughs> they're out there. Well, unless they're telling me that I should look to Kanye West as a <laughs> role model for parenting. There's... Very few people who will argue that. Probably not even Kanye West, I'll bet. So you know why we wrote this book? Originally, we started writing a different book because Dave went to NYU's film school. And I, and I did. And actually, when I heard about this pyramid, I actually I was like, this is a great breakdown of sort of what themes are interesting in entertainment. I love seeing people have to choose between these sorts of things. Even when you mention Kanye, I immediately start thinking, well, he's good at demonstrating status. And then he yep. did, you know, he has kids, but now he's in this sort of mode where, and we see it very publicly, his relationship has broken up and now he's got to choose between his own status from that and taking care of his kids with his ex. It's compelling, you know, and I think this is what we like in life is we like seeing this and we like it in art is seeing people try to figure these things out. How do you balance this? How do you maintain your status and how do you keep your family together, even in Hollywood? It would be a really interesting test if you give people these seven components and say, okay, each of you build your pyramid. What we actually have started suggesting to people is think about ways you can achieve each of these goals. What's the biggest challenge? So, Guy, for you right now, if you think about survival, self-protection, friendship, mate acquisition, mate retention kin care. Oh, I missed status. Status. Missed right. Status. First of all, which of those is occupying your mind the most? Parenting, 99%. 99% of parenting? And now what about your kids? What do you think your kids are trying to figure out? How old are your kids, by the way? They are like 30, 28, 19, and 17. Ah. And they're not thinking about parenting. <laughs> At least I hope not. <laughs> They may be thinking about managing their parents, but not parenting their own. <laughs> I mean, that is a big one. Actually, I know my dad's lab did some asking people what is really important. And parenting ends up being really high. And then taking care of not just kids, but other family members. Really big one for a lot of people. Yeah, we were, you had brought up before evolutionary psychology. And a, a lot of the early research was on mating and digression. And so... I collected some data with Ara Co and a, a large team of 50-something collaborators in 35 countries. And we asked people, this the question Dave just asked you, in terms of what are your motivations right now? And one of the things we found that was really interesting was that mating-related motives were very low, even for college students, believe it or not. College students care more about maintaining their romantic relationships and they do about finding new ones and they also care more about families now there are some slight differences males care more about finding mates than females do but it's not like even for a college-age male it's the top of his heap the biggest things that people care about is they care about their friends and their families that's what people are thinking about on a daily basis. And that's kind of interesting because you'd think if you read some of the literature, if you read people's perceptions of evolutionary psych, everybody's thinking about getting laid all the time. And even for college students, they're thinking about those maintaining their 
Right. People do spend a lot of time thinking about maintaining their relationships when they're in relationships. That's an important one. So that's what your kids are probably thinking about their friendships, and they're probably thinking about you. <laughs> <laughs> Now, you sure you're not subject to self-selection in that you're only giving these surveys to psych students, right? Well, I mean, is these... the ASU football team involved in, in these things too? The first survey we gave... There's a guy, and I'm forgetting his name, but he's a co-author on our paper, but he works with Tony Robbins, and he wanted to have a more theoretical approach to coaching people. And so he has this gigantic list of people, and we sent the first questionnaire out to his list of people, and they were mostly, they were people who were above 25 years old. The mean age was in their 40s. It was a wide range. And so that was our first sample where people came back and said they're concerned with their families. And first I thought, well, that's, of course... They're probably older people who have young children. Then we did it in other countries, and a lot of our subjects were college students, but some were not. We also got samples that were from outside of the college population, working adults, and it's... Well It's very That's reassuring. It's fairly so, universal. Yeah, so little, you, it is reassuring. Yeah, I'm going to go really detailed in for a second here. So you explain this concept of go tit for tat and then turn nice. Ah. And I want you to explain that because I think that is so powerful. And I'm being a little bit of a hypocrite here because I can certainly do the tit for tat part, but not necessarily the turning nice part. So will you explain that as a evolutionary concept <laughs> to, to be happy and succeed and successful, et cetera, et cetera, in life? What do you think, Dave? Are we talking about the sort of the ideal strategies for cooperation versus conflict? Yes. Where, that's yes. So a lot of times people have been running these simulations, right, of what is the ideal way to cooperate. And being nice, well, one of the best ones is you always start out being nice, but then if the person you just interacted with wasn't nice, then next time you're not nice to them. But then the next step is, and this is what computers do better than humans. So Guy, your concern is correct. The computers do much better if they switch back to being nice because they do something annoying to you and then you do something annoying to them. That can be a trap where it's not going to stop. But it actually turns out that if you switch back and say, look, you were nasty to me this one time and I reciprocated, but now I'm going to be nice again. That's hard to do. That requires a kind of a Zen discipline in some sense. But if you do it, it's a great strategy. It's a hard to beat strategy because if you keep reciprocating negativity, then you've lost the relationship and you've lost any benefits. But if you keep being nice to someone and let them screw you over, then you're being suckered. We talk about this as one of the obstacles to being nice which is maybe people will exploit you, but the tit for tat and then switch back to nice turns out to be, it's a good strategy, but it requires some self-discipline to do it. You know, if somebody's done you wrong, it's hard to be nice to them after that. Yeah, is this a, a good algorithm for parenting too? Oh, yeah. actually, no, because the thing is for parenting, and you guys have done some research on this too, right? So a lot of the ways, you know, to study this is using like prisoner's dilemma type games where the ideal outcome for you is not necessarily the same as the ideal outcome for the other person, but you both do better if you cooperate. I'm just going to explain it real quick because I'm half explaining it. So essentially, it'll be the type of thing if two people have to confess to a crime, if you confess and the other person confesses, you both go to jail for 10 years. If neither of you confess, you both go to jail for a year. But if you turn them in and if you confess and they don't, I'm doing this totally you get No, you got it right. You get off, no, if you confess, then you get off the hook Maybe and they go to jail for 20 in. years. <laughs> yeah. so it's the prisoner's dilemma. But the prisoner's dilemma has to be modified when you're talking about kin because like, if I'm at a prisoner's dilemma game with Dave, he shares half my genes and so I get half of his benefits. And so we, in fact, did some modeling that showed that, in fact, the number of situations that are dilemmas are actually lower when you're dealing with kin because you get 50% of the benefits back. So if I give Dave 100 bucks, it's really like giving Dave 50 bucks in some sense because 50 of it's going to my common genes from an evolutionary perspective. So when you're dealing with your kids, Yes, the rules, the normal rules, you know, I mean, it's one of the problems that psychology for a long time used a kind of marketing metaphor, this idea that it is all about game theory and that you want to sort of maximize your rewards and like the classical economic man model. That turns out to be a great rule 
if you're trading stock options on Wall Street and you're dealing with strangers, but it even turns out that in a, you've been in business contexts, you don't deal with your coworkers that way. You don't always say, you do something for me. I want the best possible deal I can get out of you and I'm going to give you the least possible thing I can give. They're going to say, I'll deal with somebody else rather than this nasty son of a bitch. And so we actually like, you recommend in your book, be nice. That's a good strategy. It turns out that people who are nice to their coworkers go up further because I want you to be my leader if you're the nice person. So there's a different rule for coworkers. And then when it comes to your children, you're never going to get anything back really, you know. And so it's basically, it's an evolutionary one-way street. We give them resources. I give Dave resources and I hope he uses them wisely and passes some of them to his kids. But I don't expect, he still hasn't paid me back for that NYU education and I'm not holding my breath. <laughs> so so I just want, just to jump in real quick and try to redeem myself from my terrible explanation of the prisoner's dilemma. I did want to say, so... Like my dad was saying, his group had research on people do better in the prisoner's dilemma with family. So these tit-for-tat strategies that have been done with like computers running these games, there's actually... The, Athena Actipus's lab did some really interesting studies showing that if the algorithms have a chance to move, right, to decide who they do business with, rather than having to be randomly selected, like to always have to do business with another randomly selected algorithm, the ones that would just be very nice and then also move to be closer to the ones that would be very nice, those did even better than the ones that had a tit-for-tat strategy, I believe. And so it actually turns out a lot of times, even in business, the best thing is just, well, always be nice, but then surround yourself with other people who do the same. And, so. Well, her strategy was called walk away. That actually turns out to be better than tit for tat. If you're in an interaction with somebody and they appear to be exploitive, find another partner. And then what will happen is those exploitive people will be left out on their own. Another part of the book that I found so fascinating is the, I hope I repeat these studies correctly, but this concept that when an attractive research assistant appears on the scene, male skateboarders try riskier tricks. That is so interesting. And first, did I get that right? Yes, Dave. You All right, I'm going to try this one because I've talked to Von Hippel about this. And they are less likely to bail. So essentially, there's a point when you're doing a, a trick and you might realize, I'm not going to land this. And you can sort of bail and run off your board. Or you can commit. And if you commit... You might land the trick or you might wipe out. And they went to a skate park where most of the skateboarders were men. They went up to men to ask them. I don't know if there were also women there skating, but they talked to men. Most skateboarders are men. But they, yeah, but they asked guys and they either would have a woman, an attractive woman or a guy go up and say, hey, could you show me a trick that you are currently working on? And when the woman would ask, the guys would be much less likely to bail. So they would wipe out more, but they would also land tougher tricks because they would commit. And there's a lot of really interesting studies because then they also even took testosterone samples from the guys and the guys, their testosterone would go up, which would make them more likely to land tricks, but worse at math problems. So they actually think it might even be that guys can't even calculate risks as well when we get the testosterone boost. So it's really yeah, fascinating. Guys, well, what they found is there was a correlation between how high your testosterone level went when the attractive women came and how risky you were. And so that was a very fun finding. So now looking at it from the woman's point of view, do you think that the attractive female is looking at the males who are taking more risk and consciously or unconsciously they're thinking oh this male takes more risks he's braver stronger etc etc so better provider but my question would be why wouldn't the female be thinking this dumbass is going to get killed and leave me as a sole provider so what's going on in the female brain well it might be that for women as they're walking around town everybody around them is falling off of skateboards so they might just think this is how guys act all the time right <laughs> but the guys who land the tricks are demonstrating a sort of true signal of competence right of physical prowess and balance and things like this 
That's a good question. Has anyone ever looked to see if a guy who wipes out on a skateboard and then asks a woman out, if that works out for him? I don't know. No, I, don't, I don't think that's been done. But there is research that does show that women are attracted <laughs> to guys who can establish some kind of dominance over other men. And so at the skateboard park, being the best skateboarder, that's the way to dominate the other guys. But there's a very interesting question that you're raising, Guy, and I'm not sure the answer to it. It sometimes depends on whether women are looking for short-term or long-term. So, for example, women are actually more interested in kind of in less flashy guys for long-term relationships. So we, uh, we, we actually did a study with Jill Sundy, who's, who is also a student of Cialdini's, and, and Vlad Griskevich, another member of that same team with Bob. And what we did is we asked women to evaluate guys who were driving either a really flashy car, the kind that Guy Kawasaki likes, or who were driving a car they... Uh, <laughs> or a Prius. <laughs> yeah, or a Prius, all right? Or it, it was something like that. I think it, it actually, actually was, was something like a it Prius. It was something yeah, like, like a, a small... Well, it was a... It was a yeah, it was a Honda. It was a, a nice model, middle-class Honda, but it didn't say, I'm risky and I'm flashy. And both guys had a good job. And the guys who drove the flashy car were regarded as more attractive for dates right now, for short-term relationships. But for long-term relationships, I believe the guys who drove the Honda Civic were considered a better bet in the long run. And people would advise their sister, go ahead and go on a date with the guy with the gold Porsche. But when you're going to settle down and get married, they trust the guy that's driving the Civic more. I want you to know that I have one of each of those kind of cars. Oh, you do? Okay. You've got all bases covered. I got all the bases Up next on Remarkable People. And then a third thing that Dave was just saying, make yourself useful. Like friendship doesn't have to be about going out and drinking or partying or whatever, or just good old buddy stuff. It's fine to do that. But also my best friendships have come, you know, Cialdini and I have been friends for 50 years and we sort of, we've helped each other. He helped me more than I helped him, but I was actually his first graduate student. uh, Wow. Yeah, many years ago. Listeners of the Remarkable People podcast will learn from some of the most successful people in the world. They provide practical tips and inspiring stories that will help you be more remarkable. If you live in the U.S. or Canada, text 831-609-0628 to get notified of each new episode. Welcome back to Remarkable People with Guy Kawasaki. If I may be so bold, because I think my listeners should definitely read this book. We we go into these seven areas. At the end of every chapter, you give these are three or four tips for the seven areas. Can you just give us for survival and dealing with bullies and getting along and getting ahead and finding true love and staying in love and having a great family. Can you just give us the 60 second, one minute evolutionary psychologist summary of those areas? Do you have the little list I just sent you on your... I mean, yeah, I have. I have. So I could... So for survival, right? One of the biggest challenges these days is things like eating too much or a sedentary lifestyle. And Setting up your environment. We talked about that earlier in the show, but that's a really powerful one. Keep the foods you don't want out of the house, but also the other side of environment, setting up your environment is make healthy options really easy. So have the healthy foods nearby. And also even think about ways to just take a few extra steps every day. These are things people have probably always heard, but they work. Again, it requires a sort of discipline. So both Dave and I, we live about a mile and a half from campus. We live in the same neighborhood, and we have offices down the hall from one another. You can see my bicycle over here. We both gave up our parking stickers, and that forces us to either bike or walk to work every day. And so that's that's the kind of thing you can do is basically you can make it easy because you don't have to decide every day. We're tired most days. And so if you force yourself to have to walk or bike to get something, then that helps. So so I also want to add one more thing. So some of the things we're mentioning right now are going to apply to all seven because they're basic behavior management things. Social support, seeking social support for these sorts of things is really, really useful. I've started doing this thing after... My dad was reading Katie Milkman's book and we were talking about Liz Dunn's research on giving people money because it makes you happier. I now give my kids money after every week that I don't eat processed sugars. And that gets them to really support this. And there's some research on that. But basically, just find ways to get 
the people around you to say, hey, you want to go for a walk? So yeah, make public commitments. So the next chapter, why don't we switch chapters and I'll do the next one. The next one's on avoiding bullies and barbarians. It's self-protection and micro plunderers who are the people that are nickel and diming us, the, the human equivalent of mosquitoes that take so little that we almost don't notice it, all these little fees. And so one of the things we talked about, if you're really talking about real dangerous stuff, the anthropologist that we talked to went into the jungle and met some people who just killed some telephone linemen. The advice from Kim Hill, who was that anthropologist, what he tried to do was not look like a threat. They basically took off almost all their clothes. I thought he said they got naked. He later told me, no, he just went down to his shorts just to show <laughs> there's no weapons hidden here. And so when you're in a novel place and you see a bunch of dangerous young men, you don't want to look like a threat. You've mentioned teaching once in a prison, and I did too. And I remember when I walked into that prison yard, I made damn sure I didn't make too much direct eye contact. I didn't stare down any of those guys. And I just looked like a nice, yeah, you know, I'm the laughing guy, you know. And so that's one thing. Another thing we talk about in that chapter is join together with other people to deal with what we call micro plunderers. So, for example, sometimes groups of consumers get together. There was a, a utility company, I'm forgetting where they were, when solar power came in, what they wanted to do is raise the minimum monthly charge so that you couldn't get away with going to zero. You still had to pay something. And that got out in the news, and one person couldn't fight it, but one person went out and gathered together, hundreds of other people, and went to the newspapers. So in the same way that we would gang up to protect ourselves from the bad guys coming over the hill in the accessible environment, we can gang up to protect ourselves from those modern micro-plunderers. So, yeah, I, I want to just jump in real quick here on the micro-plunderer idea, because one of the things I have this podcast zombified where we talk about how we're manipulated by things like technology and things and a lot of times i think it's tempting as a human to think if there's an app that is making me unhappy like the news feed from cnn or fox news or whatever that's scaring you that the people behind it are deliberately trying to trick you or make you unhappy and it turns out that these days, a lot of times, there's just things where the algorithms don't quite match up with our evolved mechanisms. And so just thinking about ways to team up, even with the people who make those sorts of things, and try to always think of ways to make better apps and things like that is actually a really good thing. Because a lot of times, the big bad guys of today aren't really people. They're just ideas that need to be improved. So. Well, there are algorithms that say, if I read an article about a former president who shall not be named, which is very tempting for readers of the New York Times, the New York Times fills their newsfeed with all these scary stories about like, you know, uh, white nationalists and, you know, kinds of people who aren't, don't read the New York Times. And it's almost like they're giving advertising, but they're not doing it on purpose. They're doing it because we click the damn button, you know. And so one of the things that I, we recommend at the end of the chapter is, look, when there's some bad news that keeps coming your way, just unsubscribe. So I actually give to a lot of liberal causes, to be honest. And I really get annoyed when people who probably read Cialdini's book, they're using tricks to get my money, even when they're on my side. I I don't like that. And I don't like it when every day I open up my mail and somebody who's a good person running, <laughs> Nancy, you know, against... Nancy Pelosi texted me twice today. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> it's Where does she like, find the time yeah. to text yeah. <laughs> so much? It's always like, there's bad things are happening. And I'm sure that the Republicans get the same thing on the other side. The Democrats are going to let all these people in from foreign countries that are going to rape your daughter. And what we get is the, the Republicans are going to steal grandma's social security check, you know, and kill people who have abortions. And so you know, I, what I do is I try to stop. When they scare me all the time, I just unsubscribe. I don't want it. And even the New York Times, I try to limit myself to one look a day. I don't want to just keep hearing the same. And I also try not to press the buttons about he who shall not be named. I try to read the good news. That's hard to do. Yeah, I, I, just, I also want to say in the era of Twitter and social media where we all sort of create news, resist the temptation to spread bad news. Like just post a positive thing every day. And if it doesn't get as many retweets as a negative thing would have, that's okay. That's actually a good heuristic for all of us because I like, there's a guy, Brad Bushman, he does a social psychology textbook too, I believe, and he's on my Facebook friend list and he's got probably thousands of Facebook friends, but every day he posts several jokes and I realize I really like that because a joke is just as attractive as a nasty news feed. There's just something attractive about that. All right, we're going to jump to getting along. You got to make time for real life friendship. There, boom. We're going to do that one fast. 
Well, actually, let's talk about that a little more, Dave, because I think that's a good chapter in the sense of all of our chapters open up with stories. And that one opens up with the story of a little Jewish kid who was living in Nazi-occupied France and trying to avoid the Nazis. And so he had no friends. His parents wouldn't let him make friends with people because they were afraid that he would reveal himself as Jewish. And they moved out to a little farm and they lived in a chicken coop. His name was Daniel Kahneman, who had no friends as a kid. And then as an adult, he had a very famous friendship, which got him a Nobel Prize with Amos Tversky. And so what we talk about, it's also interesting that they became friends because they were both at the same university in Israel, but they came from different countries and they were in many ways kind of different. They shared a common interest in psychology. And so I think one of the pieces of advice in that chapter is look for people that share your interests. Look for people that actually are similar to you because that's a a good basis of friendship. And also, even when somebody doesn't look like they might be exactly like you, if you delve around, you might actually find that they that they do share some. Look for similarities. Yeah. And then a third thing that Dave was just saying, make yourself useful. Like friendship doesn't have to be about going out and drinking or partying or whatever, or just good old buddy stuff. It's fine to do that. But also, my best friendships have come, you know, Cialdini and I have been friends for 50 years. And we sort of, we've helped each other. He helped me more than I helped him, but I was actually his first graduate student. Uh, wow. Yeah, many years ago. Okay. okay. So getting ahead. Why don't you tell getting who's ahead. the person that we talk about in getting ahead, Dave? Well, actually, you know, so this is a great one. This one we actually talk about Bob Cialdini as our story because he had a thing where he was going to be a baseball player and he tells the story so great because he was about to sign the contract with a recruiter for a farm team and the guy's pen wouldn't work. And then they were walking to get a new pen. And the guy says, listen, kid, are you smart enough to go to college? And Bob was like, yeah. And he was like, are you smart enough to do well in college? And Bob was like, yeah. And he said, go to college because <laughs> you're going to just like the idea. He didn't go into more of this. But as Bob tells the story, he says, look, the idea was he would have been an OK baseball player. But instead, which was his dream, right? His dream was to be a baseball player. But instead, he went into the field of psychology and he found a way to help other people. And by doing that, he had more success than he would have had pursuing his dream, most likely, like his childhood dream. Because for one thing, he rose up to be like the Willie Mays of influence, but also this was a thing people needed. And so our big things are find ways to help other people fulfill their seven fundamental motives. That's really the main and pursue a career in that. And when you're in whatever career you're in, help your coworkers achieve status and things like that so we do in that chapter we also talk about going for prestige rather than dominance go for respect learn some skills that people need you talk about this in your book as well learn a skill that other people need you can learn a skill that is a talent that people don't need that's not so good that's like being a good athlete the truth is there's like a thousand to one odds that you're going to go from being a high school athlete to actually being a highly paid pro. And there are some occupations that it's a lot. Every year, the U.S. News and World Report, I think, publishes a list of the jobs that are most in need of people and that are jobs that are good. I think a computer programmer or something now or is one of the, isn't a program, it's something like that. Is They say it's a good job. It'll get, it's not going to make you Willie Mays, but it'll make you a living. The next chapter... Finding True Love. We talk about finding mates. The case story there is a woman named Sharon Clark who was um, swept off her feet by this charming guy. She was working at a, what do they call those <laughs> things? Not, like a, not a garage sale. What do they call these things? A swap meet. Yep. And this guy drives in with this big, beautiful Cadillac and wearing gold jewelry. And he had a lot of fancy stuff. He was hauling in a trailer. And then he started giving her flowers. They were very charming. And so she married him. And it turns out that she discovered he disappeared with her mother's belongings, with her belongings, and with the money that she had used after she sold her house because she was going to run off with him. And his name was Giovanni Vigliotto. And when she found him, she found out that not only had he screwed her over, he had 104 different wives. And he'd done the same thing to each one of them. And so that's one of the interesting things about the modern world. And it's the online. There's some modern examples of this. Guys online who pretend to be one thing and then they exploit, they get into the woman's checking account. And so one of the pieces of advice we have there is to shop locally. Get together with people who you trust and know and who your family trusts and knows. And yeah, I realize that goes against the grain now because people are meeting online. But 
Yeah, if especially if you're looking for long term. If you're looking for short term, just go to the skate park and find the guy who doesn't fall. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, and what about maintaining relationships, Dave? I'll let you. Well, take that well, one. this goes back to one of our big themes, which is help your partner achieve all of their needs as well. This sort of idea of, and I won't go into the whole story, but we talk about like Madame Curie and Pierre Curie, how they work together, and I think a lot of times people think about, oh, you're partner is just somebody you, I don't know that people actually think this consciously, but it's somebody you mate with. But just remember that it's also, they. this is somebody that can help you get along, help you get ahead, help you make friends, and you can help them. So do that. So Dave's big single piece of advice I always like for almost all of these things is go out, rather than trying to help yourself in this domain, go out and help somebody you care about or it's one of your co-workers. That's probably a fabulous suggestion. Our final chapter is called Family Values and it's about caring for your kin. And in that chapter, one of the things is that even in the modern world, it pays to keep your kin as close as possible because that's one of those old, we talked before, what things are not mismatched. It's not mismatched to love your family because your family loves you back and they're willing to put up with a lot of your crap. Like you can get away with stuff. I've actually been doing some research with Amanda Kirsch. One of the things we know is that biological relatives don't kill each other. But what we found, which is interesting, they do hit each other and they yell at each other. And why do they do that? Partially because your kids know they can yell at each other and hit each other and they're not going to terminate the relationship and the other person's not going to kill them, which isn't always true with people, other people you meet. So again, keeping your kin close is good. If you can't maintain real contact, that's where technology comes in handy in a good way. Maintain virtual contact and I actually think things like Zoom and you know the thing we're using right now, where you can actually see the people, that's a massive improvement over it. When I was a kid, the telephone, I hated the telephone because you can't see people's expressions. All you can get is a little bit of feedback. And then when we get to like text messaging, it was even worse. All you get is a few words. You can't even see the facial expression. Yeah, I just want to say one quick thing about the Amanda Kirsch study. It's about siblings are more likely to sort of play fight, but it's not, it's not, designed to injure the other person some of it is you can practice right you practice your fighting and you but well part of it is you practice your fighting but also kin are more likely to call each other out harshly on ways they are messing up and so the other part of that is talk to your kin about the decisions kin and that doesn't just mean brothers and sisters but your family your cousins talk to them and they'll give you real feedback most likely and listen to it so they'll be honest they will be honest with you yeah so the other thing at the end of the book we come back and talk about a woman named osceola mccarthy and she's a great story because a lot of people and Dave, you've pointed this out. Dave pointed out to me that he goes on Reddit and some people seem to treat evolutionary psychology as a formula for, well, if we, if we have selfish genes, then the way to be is selfish. And it turns out that even Dawkins didn't say that. As a human being, that's not a good strategy. But we regard as a hero, not Genghis Khan, who got a lot of his genes into future generations, but was pretty brutal along the way of doing that. We have as our role model, Osceola McCarthy, who didn't have children of her own. She did care for her family. But she was a beautiful story. She was born in like 1910 or something, or 1908, uh, in that rough era. And she had to drop out of the sixth grade. She was an African-American woman living in Mississippi, I believe, had to drop out in the sixth grade to help her aunt who had become ill. And she started doing people's laundry. And she never went back to school. And she would make 10 cents a shirt, cleaning and pressing a shirt. And over the years, she never bought a car. She never bought a color TV. She had a little old black and white TV for a few years. And she would roll her groceries from the supermarket in a shopping cart. And she lived in a a humble home and didn't have many expenses. And she goes into the bank and she ended up having what looks today, it was 1990, but if you correct for inflation, she had roughly close to $450,000, as I recall, which was a lot more money than somebody with no bills, no car, needed. And so her banker said, well, how do you want to invest this money, Osceola? She said, I don't need it. I want to give it away. And she gave it, this woman who dropped out of the sixth grade to help her family, she gave her money 
to young African-American women to go to college. And she won the Presidential Medal of Honor from Bill Clinton back when it meant something. And she really was a hero. And yep. she lived a nice, ripe old age. She lived in 91. People respected her. And she lived a fulfilling life. And that, I think, is a model. Do nice things for other people. And you'll feel good about yourself and other people will want to be near you. That's a wrap for today's episode of Remarkable People with Doug Kenrick and David Lundberg Kenrick. Thanks for tuning in as we explored the fascinating world of evolutionary psychology and how our Stone Age brains still shape our thoughts, behaviors, and experiences. We hope you enjoyed the discussion and learned something new. Be sure to tune in next week for another enlightening episode of Remarkable People. Until then, keep your mind curious and your evolutionary psychology sharp and be like Osceola McCarthy. I'm Guy Kawasaki. This is Remarkable People. Thanks to Peg Fitzpatrick, Jeff C., Shannon Hernandez, Luis Magana, Alexis Nishimura, and the drop-in queen, Madison Nesmer. Mahalo and aloha. Want to know when there's a new episode of Remarkable People? Simply text 831-609-0628 if you live in the U.S. or Canada. Don't miss upcoming shows. Take a moment to follow Remarkable People in your app or podcast player. This is Remarkable People.